0: Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent work and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the show you'll get to hear my conversation with Ben Stanhope on the question of whether there are dinosaurs in the Bible. Ben has a degree from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a Masters in Manuscript Cultures from the University of Hamburg. He has written, amongst other topics, on ancient cosmology and ancient Israelite archaeological inscriptions. This conversation is born out of Ben's recently published book, Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum Misunderstands the Ancient Near Eastern Context of the Bible. A link to the book is available in the description and I would highly recommend it. I think it's a very important book for highlighting how certain methods of interpreting the Bible can be quite problematic if we're really seeking to understand the cultural context of this wonderful book we call sacred. A few explanatory comments just before we get into the conversation you'll hear about a project known as the Creation Museum in this podcast. This is basically a huge museum in Kentucky, in the United States, and it's a project of well-known young earth creationist uh, Ken Ham and his organization Answers in Genesis. This organization basically takes an alternative science approach to understanding the Bible, which results in some quite radical contentions, like that the universe is 6,000 years old, that there was no animal death before the fall, and of particular relevance for today, that dinosaurs lived with human beings. Uh, If you are a young Earth creationist and you're listening to this episode, that's totally fine. I welcome you. I get on very well with people who hold these views. They're my brothers and sisters in the faith. Many of them are incredibly godly people, and I don't think holding to these views is heretical or anything, don't worry. I just think it creates scientific and exegetical problems. And Ben will highlight these problems in some detail in the following conversation, and uh, just just listen and um, uh, enjoy it, really. Um, so with that said, let's get on to the conversation. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no worries. So uh, to start off with, um, there's some general questions i have and this is a set of um brief questions to establish that you're a human being um obviously i'm sure you know of kind of the caricatures of you know academics as kind of the robotic introverts who uh, um just sit in their studies all day you know so um
1: that's pr- that's pretty accurate
0: actually. <laughs> okay um but um so maybe 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 you're slightly human anyway so um Um, Obviously, as I was on your Facebook page to send you an invitation to this podcast, I noticed that you were once employed as a, I had to write, I had to write this down very clearly, um, oligonucleotide synthesis technician at Eurofins Genomics Americas. So how would you describe this to a five-year-old? Maybe I am a five-year-old mentally, but you know.
1: Well, the city that I'm living in, I I did an MA in Germany and did like archaeometric stuff, uh, like archaeological science. And then I moved back to a city where there's like not much work at all for that. Like we have like one museum here.
0: <laughs> so and it's, and is here it the creation center. museum? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that that's like in a city up above me, but uh, I decided to, to join on with uh, a genomics company for a while, just for some lab experience. And uh, yeah, the job was I basically sat in a room like with several computers and there's like these giant machines it, it all looks like a, like a, a bootleg, like whiskey distillery. <laughs> and like, uh, there's all these vats to chemicals that you're moving around. And, uh, basically you're, you're creating DNA strands for research. And like, you have all, all these DNA strands in the computer that someone else assembled, you just assign them to a machine and it's, it's like a manufacturing job, but it's, uh, it's really weird because the end product is invisible <laughs> you like load plates in these machines and then it takes like hours and hours and hours for it to make these DNA strands. And then you pull out the plate and it's like, there's nothing there, but like you've
0: created DNA. And so speaking of occupation, I imagine you have plans for biblical scholarship in the future. I, well, I'm guessing anyway, do you do you have any plans to pursue a PhD in something Bible related anytime soon?
1: Man, my my whole life,
0: I've always dreamed of getting, getting a PhD and,
1: uh, I had, I had dreams of becoming a professor even. And when I graduated from college, I went to three different professors and asked for their advice. (laughs) This is so sad, man. They all, they all told me like, stay away, don't do it. It's not worth like as an economic decision, um, biblical studies as a field is just so uh, like broken in terms of employment opportunities. It's just like not worth it. So like, uh, yeah, I went to Germany for an MA because the tuition there was free. And, like in America, it's just like an ungodly amount of money. So, that's how I justified it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to get a PhD still. It's just a matter of, uh, well, I did an MA in Germany in manuscript studies because I thought like I could go into rare books and special collections and maybe like museum stuff. Maybe it'll diversify me a little bit. But uh, <laughs> I still want to get a PhD. It's just a matter of like uh, in the future as things play out, will it be economically sensible?
0: Yeah, yeah. Would PhDs in Germany be free? Yeah, they they pay for most of it, depending on uh what you're doing. Yeah, you'd wonder why doesn't just everyone go to go to Germany? Language is a huge was a huge barrier for me. Yeah, do, do you not speak German? No,
1: no, I, I still don't speak it very well, like enough to survive. But yeah, just like getting getting like a phone plan in a language that's like that you're not good at is like this huge
0: undertaking when you move yeah. to a different country. Yeah. So uh, getting more biblical, if you could ask a human Bible character one question, um, who would the character be and what would the question be? I'm sure
1: a lot of people, like most people would have all these profound questions for Jesus or St. Paul. And I probably, <laughs> I probably should put more thought into it and ask them something. But I, the, the one thing that my mind jumps to is uh, the scribes that wrote Genesis 5, the genealogy in it is uh, that text, I've probably spent, you know, just a collective like insane amount of hours trying to figure it out because, uh, so it has like the, the ages of the patriarchs and the ages that they died and the ages that they had sons. And the numbers are like very mathematically symbolic and formulaic. You know that there's some type of formula going on. Um, and then every single uh, major text tradition that we have so like the Septuagint, the Samaritan, Pentateuch, and the Masoretic text, they all disagree wildly <laughs> on, <laughs> on how old these people were. Uh, so there's a question of like, why is this so fluid when other parts of the Bible like are very are pretty much very, very stable? So I just want to know what they were doing there. Uh, <laughs> what was their motivation? I just want to like, uh, we know there's uh, a text called the Sumerian Kings List which lists the age of the Sumerian kings, and scholars have noted there's all sorts of parallels with how those numbers function as to how the Genesis numbers function. So there's something going on there, but no one in biblical studies cracked the code. I do have a chapter on in the book where I offer a lot of different theories and explanations for some of it, but...
0: That obviously forms a nice segue into talking about your book so um i don't have a physical copy here i just have it on kindle but um it's called uh, misinterpreting genesis how the creation museum misunderstands the ancient near eastern context of the bible and it it is really really good so fair play i suppose the first question i'd want to ask about is that so we often hear that creation science as found at organizations like answers in Genesis is almost non-existent in the scientific community. Would you say it's similarly non-existent in the world of biblical scholarship? And if so, I'm curious, you know, if it is, why would you devote time to um, debunking it? For
1: the second part, like I
0: often seriously do feel
1: weird that I'm debunking it, but the reason why I go after it, I guess, is that I spent so much of my life as a hardcore young earth creationist. And I know like how, uh, important it is to people just because it's an element of my personal past (laughs) but uh some of some of the theories are just so wild like they think that dinosaurs some aquatic marine reptiles used to breathe fire because Leviathan did for example in terms of like the the first part of your question it's interesting that uh among like theologian types so if you go to like a seminary for example where people are trained to be pastors there are a tremendous amount of PhD scholars that are young earth creationists at least there, there were at my seminary, for example. I graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So here's the thing, like in professions where people are training for like ecclesiastical functions and to be pastors, if you go read the course catalogs of these seminaries, like and how people are trained, they're not typically trained very well in how to interpret the Bible in its ancient cultural context. Like they just don't take that many courses in that type of a subject. And part of that's like totally understandable because they need to be learning practical aspects of like how to run a church and and they're learning a bunch of church history and sort of philosophy and that sort of thing. But uh, I would say once you get into fields that are specifically about the nuts and bolts, like interpretation of the Bible and like it's ancient context. So like Egyptology uh, or Assyriology or Semitics, once you get to like that end of things, I know almost no young earth creationists, uh, they're, they're a good number within Semitics, but like in Egyptology and Assyriology and Ugaritology, like they're, they're pretty rare.
0: Okay, for, for the listeners then at this point, we're going to uh, play a little clip here to maybe give uh, background to the uh, text we're going to be looking at today. It's uh, Job 40 and 41, and in this extract, I'm going to be uh, basically explaining the story of Job. And uh, then we're going to hear Ben himself reading out uh, the passages in question, which lead a lot of young earth creationists to think that there are dinosaurs in the Bible. So let's see how this goes. The book of Job is one of the most unique books of the Hebrew Bible. While it is indeed a narrative, it is generally regarded to be part of the wisdom literature of the Bible, alongside the likes of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and even the Song of Songs. Job is a beautiful, poetic exploration of the problem of suffering, framed in terms of the story of the title character, who loses all that he has, even his children, and is brought to the pit of despair as he contemplates the reason why God has allowed him to suffer. Is it because he has sinned? Or does God not care? Those are a couple of suggestions made by Job's friends, but he finds these answers to understandably be less than satisfactory. Towards the end of the book, he demands that God appear to him and explain himself. And God obliges, manifesting himself in the form of a dramatic storm cloud. And as he addresses Job, he describes two great creatures in detail in order to emphasize his sovereignty and power over creation. These two creatures are called behemoth and leviathan, and they are described as follows. Job chapter 40, verses 15
1: through 24, the English Standard Version. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff, like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. Job 41, the English Standard Version. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Round his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke. As from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. His underparts are like sharp pot shards. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He is king over all the sons of prey.
0: So obviously we're going to start with Leviathan rather than Behemoth, and it will become apparent to our listeners um, why in a little bit. Yeah, when it comes to Leviathan, now obviously this this creature sounds quite dinosaur-like. Um, on well, at least on first first hearing, you know, if you if you come from that background. So um, who would um, answers in Genesis say this creature is, and um, what would scholars say uh, in by contrast? For the past like
1: over a decade now and like if you when you walk into the creation museum one of the first things that you see is this huge display on the wall and it quotes these two passages from job and on the side where it quotes uh, where it discusses leviathan it has a picture of basically a mosasaur or plesiosaur <laughs> so they think uh, this is a description of a dinosaur or an aquatic marine reptile, I should say. Part of the problem, of course, is everything would kind of fit the profile of that in terms of the description. The only problem in Job, for example, would be the fact that it very obviously breathes fire. So how do they deal with this? They actually bite the bullet and they, uh, they actually teach that some uh, marine reptiles used to probably be able to literally breathe uh, flames. And my problem with this interpretation is that the Bible isn't the only text that mentions Leviathan or a version of Leviathan. So there's a culture north of Israel in Syria called Ugarit. And Ugarit, uh, they were a Baal-worshipping society. And we have texts from Ugarit. Uh, their language is the closest to biblical Hebrew to any other that we've discovered. We have several mentions of this creature called Latanu in their language. It's a cognate word for Leviathan. And in the Bible, Leviathan's called the twisting serpent. Uh, he's also called the fleeing serpent. And he's called by the exact same titles in the Ugaritic texts. And the Hebrew and Ugaritic words are, that are used are cognates as well. So we know, we know there's no way that this is coincidence that this creature appears in these two different civilizations. Yeah. yeah, And the Ugaritic texts are far older than the vast majority of the biblical texts. Um, so just to give you an example here that I have in the book, um, there's a text. It's from the Ugaritic alphabetic text. It's in uh, the first volume in section five. And the text reads, you smote Latanu, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisting serpent, the dominant one who has seven heads. And a good text to compare this with in the Bible would be Isaiah 27.1. The text reads, in that day, Yahweh will punish with his greatly fierce and mighty sword, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. All right, so (laughs) why do I not think that uh, Leviathan is like this ancient, literal marine reptile? Well, first of all, in Psalm 74, uh, I believe it's verse 14, the Hebrew says, Atagi tzatzare she leviathan which in Hebrew means you crush the heads, plural, a Leviathan singular. And I just read in uh, the Ugaritic alphabetic text where it states point blank that Latanu, uh, this counterpart of Leviathan, has seven heads. So we can conclude in Psalm 74 that he probably has seven heads as well. We know that he is a type of hydra in Psalm 74. And the problem with that, of course, is that there's no place in the archaeological record where we found seven-headed plesiosaurs. We also had this issue that it was breathing fire to begin with, which is already kind of ridiculous to believe. So I think it's very well established that uh, Leviathan was this mythological archetype. And what did Leviathan represent? Well, pretty much every culture of the ancient Near East that we have enough text of uh, to be able to confirm this type of a thing believed in this mythological trope called the chaos dragon in Psalm 74, for example, uh, that Psalm is written in the context of the Jews being hauled off to Babylon after, uh, Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed the Babylonian empire their texts had this their own creation myth where they talk about how this how the god Marduk slayed uh, Tiamat which was the name of their cosmic dragon it's very clear in Psalm 74 that the authors of the psalm are trying to take this myth and apply it to Yahweh they talk about basically the psalm talks about how god crushes this the heads of the dragon in conjunction with creating the world which is the same as the babylonian text
0: so i suppose in in that context it's kind of it's like a slap in the face sort of thing
1: yeah and this is something people tend to underestimate that the bible does is it very very often will take attributes of foreign gods apply them to yahweh and that wasn't seen as like uh sacrilegious that was seen as this is how you elevate your God in the ancient Near East. It was very, very common. Mm. And uh, we have counterparts of Leviathan in Egypt. There's this creature called a Pophis, which the sun God has to battle every single night. He's a representation of the cosmic sea that encompasses the uh, flat disc of the earth. Um, and then in the Baal literature, we have Latanu and Latanu, Baal has to slay Latanu in, in order to prove himself king over creation in order to sustain the created order and it's very clear when you read especially other parts of Job's that mention that mentions Leviathan and in other parts of the Bible that God why would God be beating up a dinosaur it just doesn't make any sense it's very clear that the Bible is participating in this same ancient mythic trope and it's not even as if the Bible's stealing it from other cultures I mean the Bible was ancient Near Eastern culture it's an indigenous part of ancient Israelite uh, beliefs
0: yeah, I, I remember in your, in your book, that was one of my favorite lines when you're like, why would Gobi beating up a poor officer at the eschaton? Um, and I, I'm wondering, like, have you ever seen young earth creationists interacting with Sam 73? Because I actually did some
1: literature searches in order to see if any of them have brought it, had brought it up, and they very, very rarely do. I don't think I found anyone that was aware that he has multiple heads. The yeah. reason is because most of them can't read Hebrew, and it's kind of ambiguous in English you crush the heads of leviathan you might think well maybe he's killing multiple leviathans but no it's it's singular uh in terms of the grammar leviathan is singular he has heads plural
0: do you think they would bite the bullet and say well yeah god is going to beat up a plesiosaur at the end of the world or right it doesn't make sense because there's there's parts of the bible where it
1: talks about he kills leviathan in conjunction with creating the world you know in psalm 74 and then in isaiah the passage i just read isaiah 27 1 it talks about how at the end of days, God's going to beat up this poor thing. So like, which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> this is why like, it's, it's not even offensive to to say that Job is describing a mythological trope because it's very clear that the Biblo- biblical authors themselves knew that it, they were speaking mythological terms. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's like threatening to the authority of the Bible in any way.
0: Yeah. So you're obviously, you're describing a chaos dragon here in, in your analysis. So Perhaps um, the young earth creationist, if he granted your analysis, um, he could respond that the problems only been kicked down the road because you have to consider why there are these dragon-like creatures in ancient mythology. Maybe they actually existed, you know, um, now you, you actually devote a chapter to this in your book. Um, and I'm wondering if you could briefly touch on that question. So at the end of the chapter, you state, um, if leading young earthers want their high minority positions in the physical sciences to be taken seriously, it is in their interest to avoid being neg- negligent with ancient texts, folklore, and artifacts. And that's quite a strong statement.
1: Yeah. So Leviathan, I think, is particularly patterned off of a serpent. Um, he's called the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. Um, Apophis is very clearly a serpent in Egyptian texts. It's very interesting. So Leviathan is called um, the twisting serpent. And the question is, you know, why would he be called that? Why does he have this ancient title that appears in multiple cultures? And I think the reason why we can see in Egyptian art is that the ancient Near Eastern people, they believed that the earth was a flat disc. And then you have this ring of ocean around it. And that ring of ocean is often depicted as a snake, as a giant snake that encompasses the earth, which is very interesting because uh, it reminds me of in Scandinavian mythology, like in Viking mythology, you have the cosmic serpent that represents, <laughs> that represents uh, the, the ocean that encompasses the earth and mm-hmm. uh, So this is an idea that they arrived at uh, separately. And I think part of the reason for this just has to do with like a a couple of facts about human neural architecture and our evolutionary history. Snakes have been preying on human beings before our species even was a species for millions and millions of years, going back almost further than any other predator, and exerting very, very high selective pressure on our species. So so we have a very strong tendency, uh, human beings, to attribute Things that activate danger in our mind get, very often get symbolically articulated in the form of uh, serpent symbolism in the same way that like if you had a society of mice that were going to invent like like a, a, a mega monster, they'd probably give it a lot of cat-like attributes just because cats have had such selective force within their evolutionary history. I think it's the same for humans, but the other aspect of it, um, part of the reason why I think human beings... Tend to believe that there was this ancient time where there were dragons on the earth. Is that uh, ancient people found fossils <laughs> quite frequently, depending on which part of the world it was? Right. So there's a scholar named Adrian Mayor who's written. She's dedicated quite a bit of her career to this subject. She's written two books. Uh, one is called "The First Fossil Hunters," and it talks about how people used to discover in classical antiquity, like in Greek and Rome, people would discover uh, dinosaur and. Ancient megafauna fossils, and they would try to interpret them, and they invent all these crazy mythologies about them. And then she has a book on uh, Native Americans. How uh, in North America, there's there's all sorts of very, very fossil various regions, and Native Americans were very, very much aware of fossils within uh, certain states of the U.S. And they very explicitly would invent legends in order to explain. Uh, why do we have all these ancient giant reptiles that were finding you know, their bones in the soil? Um, there was a paleontologist that went to a province in China because he had heard that uh, the locals were discovering fossils in the soil. And, and it turned out that uh, these people thought that there were still dragons alive and flying in the sky when, when the paleontologist interviewed them because when he looked at the fossils they were discovering uh, within their fields, they were, look, they were looking at uh, herbivorous dinosaur remains. So it's very very reasonable that ancient people would invent dinosaur legends just because they were finding dinosaur remains
0: and it's just the it's just the human imagination kind of the power of the human imagination you know just another example of that i would say uh, so, so let's move on to behemoth um so um that's obviously the first um creature that's mentioned in this um in this extract in job um and so who do Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries, these creation science organizations, who do they say that this creature was? And to put it bluntly, why are they, why are they wrong? Right, so it's pretty much like a creationist
1: meme that they think it's, that Behemoth is a sauropod dinosaur. And this has become like a major feature of their apologetics for their position on the old earth that, look, the Bible mentions dinosaurs. They must have lived alongside human beings. Uh, when you walk into the creation museum, <laughs> when you walk into the creation museum, this is actually depicted on the wall where they, they quote these verses, and then they have this picture of a brachiosaurus, and there's like all these guys standing around here hunting it, because they think like uh, the reason dinosaurs are extinct in part is because human beings hunted them to extinction uh, after the flood, and they date the flood to 2,300 BC, uh, which is smack in the middle of the Egyptian Old Kingdom after the age of the pyramid builders. It's also like in the middle of the height of the Assyrian, of a Sargon of Akkad's empire, which doesn't really make any sense. But uh, the two main reasons why they identify him, particularly with like a creature like a Brachiosaurus, is Job talks about how he's chief among the works of, of God, the passage says. And like guys like Ken Ham in his book, he takes that to mean that this must be among just animals that ever existed on land. And the titanosauria, like the sauropods, those are among the largest that ever existed on land. And then there's the other line, uh, he moves his tail like a cedar or somehow his tail is like a cedar. And there's no living animal that has a tail like a cedar that's obvious. Uh, Sauropod dinosaurs certainly do. (laughs) So the reason why I don't think their interpretation is correct, uh, I think I have about five here. The first is that Behemoth's name, Behemoth, is based off a Hebrew word, behema, And in the Bible, if you do a search for Behemoth, it typically represents mammals. It typically represents most often livestock and cattle. And for example, in Genesis, when it gives listings of like all the different types of animals on the earth, for example, you know, the birds of the sky and, and the reptiles and the Behemoth, it kind of uses the category of reptiles and Behemoth as like opposing categories. <laughs> And the Hebrew Bible, it has words for scales, it has words for reptiles, it has words for dragons even that are used in Job, and behemoth is never hinted at to be anything like that. The basic conclusion you you would expect to draw is that it's some type of mammal. A second reason is the text says, it goes out of its way and it says, you know, behold behemoth, he feeds on grass like an ox. Um. If this thing were a sauropod dinosaur, like the most notable feature about them, they're kind of like giraffes in the sense that the main thing that you would notice and that you would remark about if you're going to write a poem about it that's praising it is you would mention that it feeds from the tops of trees. Uh, <laughs> to say, behold, you know, a sauropod, that feeds on, gra- on uh, grass like an ox is kind of like ironic. It's not something that you would expect at all. It's the opposite of what you would expect. Third reason is that this thing has testicles. <laughs> No way. I think according to the Hebrew. So in Joba uh, f- chapter 40, verse 17, when the text says he stiffens or extends his tail like a cedar, that line is in couplet parallel with the next line that says that the sinews of his thighs are knit together. This Hebrew word thighs, uh, it's pachad in Hebrew, and it's pretty rare in the Hebrew Bible when it's used in this sense. But we know its meaning uh, from Aram and uh, an Arabic cognate. And in other texts, it means the testicles. So the translation thighs is correct. I'm not challenging it, but it, it was used euphemistically in Semitic culture, refers to the testicles. Um, oh, dear. This is why in the old in the old King James translation, it literally translates this, the sinews of his stones are knit together. And then in the Latin Vulgate, it translates the term as testiculorum. All right, so if this thing has like external testicles at the that the... Job's scribes are noting, it kind of disqualifies it as a dinosaur because everything we know about dinosaurs is that their testicles weren't, you know, external of their bodies like mammals. So that's a disqualifying feature. Uh, a fourth problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mentioned that line in verse 17, he extends his tail like a cedar. That line is in parallel, as I just mentioned, with his testicles or his thighs are knit together. And the way that Hebrew couplet poetry works is that it'll say a line and then it'll repeat like the same idea just in an expanded form in the next line. And that's what's going on in the two verses surrounding this. That's what's going on in this verse. So when it says the sinews of his testicles are together, you would expect in the line above when it talks about his, uh, his tail is like a cedar that the word tail here is being used in parallel with testicles. So that implies that the tail is the euphemism for the penis. Oh!
0: Okay, and by the way, just if any parents are listening with your kids, sorry, I'll, I should have said that it was PG thirteen this uh, this uh, podcast. But uh, anyway, yeah, nothing wrong with nature.
1: We could talk about that a little <laughs> bit, uh, a little bit later. But uh, a fifth problem that I have is uh, we just talked about Leviathan. Leviathan. It's very, very secure that that, that he is sort of this cosmic archetype, like, of a mythical nature. And because Behemoth and Leviathan are in literary dyad, like, they're kind of like twins in a sense, and Christians and Jews have always interpreted them in that way, then that kind of implies that because Leviathan is mythological, Behemoth is probably mythological as well. Um, he's probably not a literal animal. Okay. So there's five problems that I have.
0: Yeah. And, so, and so what would you if you were to summarize in one sentence what you think Behemoth actually is, would you say it's some other personification of chaos like Leviathan, that sort of thing, or? It's hard to be sure what he's a personification of,
1: but I think he's, I don't, I don't like to, to use the word deity, like people that that confuses people and probably offends them, but I mean, like, a, he's, he's a creature of the same mythological, like, cosmic nature as Leviathan, most likely. And there's very ancient Jewish... Uh, traditions of interpreting him in this manner
0: hmm. so um i don't know if you've heard the suggestion that it could be a hippo but um i suppose like now that you say it you know like well it's being used in um, i think that phrase you used, dyad it's being used in dyad with leviathan it would be strange to parallel um uh, a cosmic dragon with a hippo i suppose so you know that that probably yeah
1: the, the, the hippo interpretation. It's usually
0: paired like in older
1: uh, literature with like maybe Leviathan was a crocodile, which I think is kind of ridiculous because crocodiles don't breathe fire. but you would see it a lot like in commentaries and uh, you know how scholars would evade the fact that you know there are features of these animals that don't exactly align with like a hippo or with with the crocodile. They take all sorts of routes, but I think the As a hunch, I think it's correct that these creatures are probably, for example, when the author describes Job, I don't doubt that he saw crocodiles and that he was attributing traits of crocodiles sort of in a pastiche mythologically to help articulate Leviathan. In the same way, I think that uh, behemoth, you probably have elements taken from cattle and possibly hippos. And Behemoth, I don't think that he is an ox. I don't think that he is a bull, but I think that he's he's got the elements of a bull. Um, he's a, he's essentially modeled after a bull, but he's like a mythological creature onto his own. He's not a literal like bull like you would see in a field.
0: I suppose if it was a if it was a hippo, you'd probably expect some reference to it um, having pink milk. I don't know if you knew that about hippos, but they,
1: <laughs> I did yeah,
0: not. <laughs> they actually have pink milk, yeah. But don't be tempted to think you have a strawberry milkshake anyway. So um, I have a, I have an article here from uh, Paul Price from uh, creation.com, and that would be a very kind of a linked organization, I suppose, with Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum, as, as you say. And um, he's aware of your views about Behemoth, and he has some things to say in an article entitled responding to liberal scholarship on behemoth. So just to get this out of the way first, uh, Ben, are are you a liberal scholar? And do you wish to undermine the Bible with your work? Uh, No, on both counts. Uh, (laughs) I think he's
1: misused the term liberal. Um, Liberalism, like liberalism in terms of like theology is actually a very technical, like historical system of doing theology. It's based a lot in the works of uh, Friedrich uh, Schleiermacher in the 18th century. So it's like evangelicals in particular, they tend to confuse like political liberalism and like progressive Christianity with like this, this historical theological system. And it's when I was in seminary, they taught us, you should not do that. You shouldn't use the term in that sort of a pejorative manner, which is what he's doing. And like, if, if you just Google, like, what are like the standards, like what is theological liberalism you'll get gospel coalition articles, for example, where they're telling you, please stop misusing this term in the way that he <laughs> in the way that he's using it. Yeah, I I don't have like any desire to try to like uh conform the Bible to science and to try to make it look good to science, which is something that I think that he does actually have uh an agenda to do.
0: Um, but maybe if he if he reads your book and he I think there is one one chapter where you quoted Pete Ann's, he'll be like, oh no, I knew all along. There you go. <laughs> um <laughs> Price notes an argument that you make in your book, um, Misinterpreting Genesis, obviously he's actually responding to a video he made, but it's, um, you make the same argument in your book, um, that um, if Behemoth was, was a sauropod, presumably the neck would have been mentioned. You have, you've obviously brought that up tonight. Um, however, Price counters this by saying, what is the most noteworthy feature of bulls? Yes, that's right, the horns. If this is supposed to be a mythical super bull or super ox, why are no horns mentioned? So how would you respond to this uh, counterclaim?
1: Right. I think this is probably one of the best points that he has in his article. Um, I don't find it convincing. And the reason why I don't really see it as a problem for my view is, so the word behemoth in Hebrew, like it typically like it most often means bull and behemoth is, is like the oath ending is an intensification form, which to me probably implies that he's, I think behemoth is, If he's based off any natural animal, he's most off, he's based mostly off of a bull, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily identical to one. Like the text says he feeds on grass like an ox. The fact that it says like an ox probably implies that he's not identical to an ox. Um, So because I think he's sort of this pastiche of different elements drawn from nature, I don't, like, I don't really care. Like maybe the ancients didn't think that he had horns, but he was bull-like in other aspects. But the reason why I think a bull is the most likely archetype that he's based off, like in terms of the natural world, the same way that Leviathan would probably be based off a lot of crocodilian aspects. First, the biblical and the Ugaritic texts uh, both describe bulls dwelling in the reeds, which is something that Job does. It talks about how Behemoth dwells in the reeds in the marsh. You also have like the fact that Behemoth, like I mentioned, it kind of implies a bull, like it's most often use of cattle. And it's an intensified form here. The poetry I mentioned several times, I think in several different ways, it emphasizes behemoths sexual virility. And I think there's probably mythological reasons for that. But this is very much a noted aspect of bulls in the ancient areas. They're usually used as symbols of of virility in that sense. Yeah, I have uh, three more reasons as well. Uh, there's that line like it talks about how behemoth like the river rushes against his mouth and he's not perturbed and that kind of reminds me of the epic of gilgamesh there's this heavenly like mythological bull where the text talks about how he he drinks up rivers um also another major reason uh leviathan in the Ugaritic text in the passage that i read earlier if you continue to read on The text continues to talk about a uh, mythological bull called the bull of El within the Ugaritic text. And the fact that the mention of Leviathan's counterpart in the Ugaritic text is paired with this type of bull seems very unlikely to me that like it seems very unlikely to be coincidence to me that in the biblical text where it talks about Leviathan, you know, and then it goes on and it talks about this other creature whose name is etymologically based off the term that's typically used for cattle. Like, it seems very likely that we have a bull-type creature here as well. And then the last reason would be just the fact that Leviathan is mythological. Um, uh, I think Behemoth is also uh, mythological, and this satisfies the mythological context of uh, the passage. Yeah.
0: Um, Price also states, um, "Wouldn't God's description of a huge tale compared to the largest trees locals in the Near East would have known, the cedars of Lebanon, and powerful muscular thighs serve the purpose of reducing Job to awestruck silence much better than an arguably arguably lewd reference to male anatomy. Um, it seems to me that he finds the interpretation you're offering to be um, crass or crude. So um, what do you think of that? You know, I suppose that wouldn't falsify it, but it's kind of, you know, probably a concern of his, I'd say.
1: Well, the the Hebrew Bible, like uh, people, people ask me all the time, why doesn't the text just use the word, you know, penis, if that's what it's referring to? Why does it have to be so obscure or oblique? And my answer to that is when you, there is no technical term for like genitalia in the Hebrew Bible. It's used like kind of creative ways to refer to the genitalia, just for certain aspects of the culture in terms of, uh, like, they don't typically like to write particularly crass in ancient Hebrew literature. And yeah, my, my argument is that the term is euphemistic, which, which kind of is the opposite of being crass. Um, it's something that you infer in the text when you read because based on the A-B parallel aesthetic of the poem, you could very easily see that because Leviathan represents these sort of destructive saltwater water cosmic forces of chaos that are ever threatening to destroy the created order. I could theorize the behemoth might represent the opposite function that he represents the fecundity and virility of the earth. In which case it would make perfect sense that, uh, the text would be emphasizing his sexual virility. So that's a theoretical explanation for why this might be happening. So, um,
0: so the last quote I'd like to bring up from Price's article is the following, and it makes a good segue. Um, just, um, he states, As one reads there, and I I imagine this is, uh, is there someone else he's referring to in the article as well? Um, I think my friend Rob Rowe, uh, he pulled him into it. (laughs) All right, okay.
1: Um, He's a Christian apologist.
0: All right, okay. Um, So as one reads there, Walton-like appeals to later extra biblical sources, it can scarcely be missed that the tendency among academics to want to read the Bible through the lens of pagan literature is very much in vogue. So uh, obviously your approach involves looking at Ugaritic and Babylonian material, and uh, perhaps those who come from this creation science, young earth persuasion are very opposed to this. Um, why do you think that's the case? And uh, more importantly, why do you think maybe it's, it's misguided to be um, opposed to it? So I used to be just like Price.
1: I thought the idea that you could contextualize the Bible with ancient Baal text was like totally blasphemous and, and like not theologically allowed at all. And what happened is I simply, you know, as I progressed and I read academic literature is I found over and over and over, I just kept be kept being pounded with all these parallels between the Bible and these ancient Near Eastern texts. And I would have it proven to myself over and over how useful they were for contextualizing the Bible. So for example, like uh, take, take Yahweh's title, the cloud Rider, within the Hebrew Bible, which is used very often. Jesus supplies, it to himself at his trial in order to uh, refer to his deity. That term uh, within the, the opening of the Baal cycle was used like dozens of times. It was a very, very ancient title for Baal. The biblical authors basically just took it and applied it to Yahweh like they often did with Baal. They would take titles and attributes of him and apply them to their God in order to show how superior Yahweh was. And this is something that was typical in the ancient Near East. It's how you elevate your deity above others as you take attributes from other gods and apply them to your God. And I would argue that uh, the Bible does all sorts of things in this domain. It borrows from the culture around it and sort of pokes it in the eye all the time in ways that uh, most Christian theologians probably wouldn't even think God should be allowed to do. (laughs) So, for example, I wrote my MA thesis on how uh, Israelites in Isaiah's period would use Egyptian art uh, on their seals, on, on ancient gems and so forth. And for example, uh, King Hezekiah, the, the biblical authors love King Hezekiah. They refer to him as this great monotheist and he abolished the pagan idols within his lands. So we've discovered like the, uh, the little clay seals that he would use for his administration. Like uh, We've discovered uh, multiple iterations of them uh, within the vicinity of Jerusalem. To make a long story short, they depict Yahweh as, a sun, as the sun disk. Um, they depict Yahweh with the, the sun disk of Ray, and he's surrounded by uh, these two depictions of onks. And what I, what I tried to do in my master's thesis was explain, you know, why would uh, a guy like Hezekiah, who is uh, so faithful to Yahweh, why would he do this? And what I found is, for example, if you go to Isaiah, there are multiple passages in the Bible that talk about Yahweh as a winged son. And it's very clear what the biblical authors were doing is they were taking these mythological tropes of Egypt and they were using them to elevate their God. So So it's not accuse me. People want to accuse me of like reading the Bible in light of these ancient texts, but the biblical authors themselves do that just so blatantly. They're not like, (laughs) they're not ashamed of it at all. Um, So if you're not able to go there with them, then your theology is preventing you from reading the Bible in its ancient context. Your theology is preventing you from interpreting the Bible correctly.
0: So it's, it's not literally that they thought Yahweh was a, was a sun disk. It's more that it's, I suppose, a polemic maybe. Was a, is that the correct right. word?
1: Right. Like a, a great example would be uh, Psalm 74. So uh, in Genesis 1, the Hebrew creation account, like there's no mention of God slaying a dragon to create the earth. But in Psalm 74, which is a creation psalm, he slays a dragon to create the earth. <laughs> and I don't think that this is a contradiction in the Bible. I think it's just like a form of
0: ancient Near Eastern polemic. So just just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, it's been very very interesting, I must say. Um, so you you've touched on this. Were you raised in a creation science context, and was there a watershed moment where you thought, you know, no, this isn't the right way to interpret the Bible?
1: Man, I, I was extremely hardcore as a young Earth creationist. I would like uh, I would grow up and read the dinosaur picture books from Dwayne Gish, and I would like read Answers to Genesis material all the time. I wrote school papers, like, (laughs) it's really (laughs) embarrassing now looking back, but like I would write school papers, like trying to like debunk evolution and and, like talking about dinosaurs still living in the Congo and all that. And and, uh, let's see. Yeah. When did I change my mind? So it was a very slow and painful process for me to change my mind um, and to reject young earth creationism. And the guy that changed my mind was uh, primarily Michael Heiser, a biblical scholar. So I was always interested in really, uh, old and weird stuff. And I had all these questions about the Bible as I was reading it for the first time, you know, as a young adult. And I was interested for, uh, I remember being interested in ghosts in the Bible and Michael Heiser's written a bunch of blog posts on ghosts in the Bible. And he's a Semitic expert. He probably knows like half a dozen ancient languages, or I think he actually knows a dozen ancient languages that he does translation work in. And he was showing like how uh, you have these terms for ghosts in the Bible, like different types of, uh spirits and you'll find them in like an Akkadian text and you'll find them in the Ugaritic text and you can see how there's like interconnections and how there's parallels that inform each other and I was just amazed that like I in church I had never seen the Bible treated in this way and I'd never seen like uh, like he was coming to conclusions that I'd never heard before so very slowly due to my exposure Heiser's the one that kind of introduced me to biblical scholarship and uh, very slowly like particularly with the cosmology of the Bible, which I dedicate probably half the book to, um, I realized that, yeah, the biblical authors, they basically believed that the earth was um, the same way that the Egyptians and the Babylonians believed, for example, that it's this flat disc and there's a dome that supports uh, this heavenly ocean. And now it, it doesn't offend me theologically like it used to. Um, I don't have any problem with the Bible containing like allusions to non-scientific things. For example, um, The Bible refers to evil eye magic a bunch of times. Uh, There are all sorts of papers and books that have been written on this subject. Uh, People focus on the old Testament a lot. Like it's called the raw eye. And and for example, Proverbs 23 verses six through eight warn that you shouldn't eat at the table of a person with an evil eye. Uh, You have Mark seven verses 21 through 22. And that text just point blank says, uh, it refers to the evil eye, the ophthalmos poneros in Greek. So you have that. You have the fact that the biblical authors they believe that kidneys are in some sense served the function of the brain. They didn't know what the brain was in ancient Near Eastern cultures. They thought that like uh, kidneys were kind of the seat of the human consciousness. And like I said, I spent half the book on cosmology. So yeah, it just doesn't offend me that the biblical authors are allowed to speak like ancient people with ancient beliefs in that sort of a sense.
0: Mm. Um, so it was a. It wasn't that there was one moment where you realized it was it was gradual for you, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So so I can't blame people that think that I'm a heretic and a liberal and everything because I would have said the same if I was in their position
0: years ago. Yeah. It's it's
1: a very slow process.
0: Yeah. Um I I think you know the what you were just mentioned there is actually it it reminds me of uh this quote in your book where you state um, if the Bible is inspired it is inescapable from studying it that any belief in its inspiration must account for God's sometimes incorporating the false ancient culture beliefs of its authors into the texts. How, how have you like reconciled this in, in your own theology? This, um, this, this um, idea, I don't, I don't really have a problem with it either. Um, but I'd be curious to know how you have, um, have you have reconciled it in your own understanding? Um. I no
1: longer believe that the Bible, to the degree that it is inspired, I don't think it's inspired in, in like the way that Muslims believe the Quran was inspired.
0: Like dictation, like yeah.
1: Yeah, like word for word. And I think a lot of like, uh, when you actually look at them in practice, I think a lot of evangelicals basically believe that, that kind of a theory of interpretation or of inspiration. There's a lot more, <laughs> there's a lot more uh, ways the Bible could be inspired that you can say that things are inspired than just that very, very narrow Uh, way of viewing things the problem is in the past um because we haven't we haven't had just archaeologically speaking a lot of context for the for the bible's world um so much of our theology of for example inspiration is just based off of uh philosophy basically Mm. and then we take that philosophy and what we think god should and shouldn't be allowed to do and then we contort the bible into conformity with it and when you actually go to submit us like for example Mike, michael heiser or John Hobbins um what they do is they go to the biblical text and they see how does it behave uh they do case studies for example, on evil eye magic in the Bible um kidneys in the bible, um the cosmology in the Bible, they start with the text and then they infer a theology based off of that and I think that's that's what I propose in the book is what we should be doing
0: yeah yeah no no i I totally understand that yeah um so um You've kind of already answered this question, but just in, are there any other scholars that you'd recommend, you know, for, um, for people who are, you know, this conversation might be whetting their appetite, you know, Um, obviously we've mentioned Michael Heiser and um, uh, was that John, uh, what was that? John Hobbins, he used to, he used to keep a blog called Ancient Hebrew Poetry. It's, it's still
1: up. It's excellent. Whenever people ask me this, I, I love to recommend a book called The Bodies of God by a scholar at jewish theological seminary named benjamin sommer and uh i won't go through an explanation of what the book is about but it's it's just uh it shows all sorts of all sorts of the weird ways that people thought about uh the nature of god uh within those ancient eastern context for example uh he's a jew and he believes that the trinity is basically an ancient jewish idea um and that it's based very firmly within the old testament
0: actually yeah he um he actually has um there's like 5 hour audio lectures of um him talking about that on on YouTube I'm pretty sure yeah rob um, Rowe preserved
1: them on youtube cuz i don't think they're available anywhere else on the internet i went the yeah. forum recently
0: yeah. but obviously uh get get the book as well because uh, he's he's an amazing scholar i actually have his book um you know revelation and authority and and on Mount Sinai. I don't know if you heard of that one.
1: I've, I've heard, I've heard lectures of him on
0: it, but I haven't read the book itself. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's pretty good. Like, yeah, it's not really a, I Think It would probably be go a bit too far for me in terms of how he understands inspiration, but you know, it's still, it's still an interesting read anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. Like, uh, Judaism for some reason, like they don't have nearly the amount of hang-ups that. Uh, like christians do for i think just for a lot of
0: historical reasons so uh yeah it's uh been great to have you on ben um just before we uh just before we close up um what's your plans in terms of uh uh your you have a youtube channel and all that and do you have plans for making videos that kind of thing in the future and
1: yeah right now i just plan on making uh shorter videos so i can make them more often because right now i typically like put probably too much work in making long form ones that take me forever to get out anything but i'm thinking about okay. just uh doing some like uh popular topics in in the bible just covering like weird passages for example
0: yeah you can do the That's the bridegroom of blood one that would be that would be great yeah that would be a great
1: topic <laughs> i'll become a now.
0: patreon supporter if you <laughs> if you do that one all right well uh thanks anyway for being on the show
1: yeah thanks